You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Why don't you turn in the scriptures if you need one. There's some in the chairs in front of you, but to the book of Mark again, chapter 10. It will be, uh, I'll be reading the same passage as I read last week. Uh, verses 17 through 31, Mark 10, 17 through 31. Uh, we can go ahead and show our picture from last week. Lincoln, you're the only one that turned it in, and uh, you win. But I'm going to read this to you because uh, it's a little bit hard to read. Now, Lincoln's, Lincoln's more of a wordsmith right, than a picture drawer. And so here's what Lincoln, here's what Lincoln wrote. As Jesus started, so this is our review for last week. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark ten seventeen. The guy was rich and he couldn't see the treasure that is right in front of him. But he can hear the treasure. The treasure is God. God is the treasure. I think you caught it, Lincoln. You caught the idea. That's it. God is our treasure. And this man had the treasure right in front of him. Let's read again about this man and his interaction. And then we'll get even a little further into the account here as we go. So Mark 10, starting verse 17. Let's listen to God's word together. May he bless his word here. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, 
houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's again ask God's help as we look at this. Lord, we're needy. We're dependent on you even right now. Lord, though I've prepared through the week, through yesterday, through this morning, Lord, to speak, Father, without your spirit, the words of your scripture, they're lifeless to us. So we need your spirit, your Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts. Lord, that we would come away today bowing down, not just on our knees and then going about our business and our own little kingdoms, but we would bow truly and worship you and say, thy will be done in all things. We are under your authority. We want to walk with you. We will give it all for you, our king. Lord, lead us along, lead us in your word and where we struggle to understand. Help us, Lord. May your spirit just weave into each of our lives and our hearts what you want to convict us of that we need to let go of. Lord, what we need to be assured of, your grace in our lives, the cross of Christ. So, Lord, we pray you'd work during this time in Jesus name. Amen. I joked last week about a sermon and taking it out of the oven and it was barely cooked Um, with the cookies being, you know, uh, they're a little more done this week. So uh, that's kind of where we're at, uh, a little more baked. But I I want you to. Think about this question, because we are going back into where we were last week, and, um, and then we're going to look further here. But here's the question, and it's really the question that this man is asking in this account. It's, it's a question for you. If you ask this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How would you answer that question? This man comes up, maybe someone comes up to you, or you ask this yourself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what things must be done to have eternal life? I hope that we see through this text that the real doer of eternal life, that what must be done is being done by the gracious work of God. I hope you see that through as we look at, at this passage. In essence, here in this sermon... There's going to be three parts as, that we look at here, and I'm just giving these up front so you know where we're going. There's, I think, three ways in which God is miraculously at work, both in this narrative and in each child he calls to follow him to enjoy eternal life. So this first part, perhaps some of you have it in your paragraphs, is this verses 17 through 22. We're going to look at there that God works to speak truth to hearts which have laid hold to other gods. Say that again. God is going to work to speak truth to hearts which have laid hold of other gods. We're going to look at verse 23 through 27 then. Again, God working, that God works to save those who can't be saved on their own. God does the work to save those who can't be saved on their own. And then... We finish up in verses 28 where Peter comes in through 31. And here again, God, you're getting the theme here. And this is what I want us to hear. God's at work. He's at work. 
Do we respond? Absolutely we respond. There's some big responses asked of us. God is, though, at work. And in this last section, God works to lavish grace on those who have left it all for his kingdom. God works to lavish grace on those who have left it all for his kingdom. Remember, we're on a journey of sorts with Jesus. We're heading to Jerusalem, hoping by our Palm Sunday to to arrive with him as he arrives in Jerusalem on that day. That's where we're aiming, where we're getting to. And Jesus has been. He's been predicting the suffering that he would endure. He's been predicting his death and his resurrection. Mark here then, so fittingly, he records this gospel. And he, he takes us on a swing here from this, the last section where we had the kids up front. We were thinking about thinking of the kingdom and as child, as needy, and that, that idea as needy children. And we as disciples of Christ are to emulate that neediness of children. Dependent on Jesus for all things. That was that verses 13 through 16. And now we come to this section. And this account of a rich young man, as it says elsewhere, it's youthful, and his encounter with Jesus. You've got needy children, 13 through 16. And now we're in the 17 through 31. You've got someone that really, at an earthly standard, has no need. He's got much wealth. And remember that as we kind of go through there, that it's awesome how Mark has tied this in throughout here. And I think we'll see that theme come here. Looking back, though, to this man's question, uh, again, as we said last week, we don't know much about him, but he does kneel and he asks Jesus really this question, good teacher, what must I do in verse 17 to inherit eternal life? In other words, what can I do? How do I secure it? How does it come about that I get eternal life. In our Christian culture, what might be our answer to that question? Somebody says, how do I attain eternal life? We might say, here's a tract outlining salvation. Here's maybe the Romans road um, or steps to peace with God. None of these are wrong. These are good things. These are maybe we present a gospel presentation. And yet, I think what we need to remember in doing so is look at Jesus, what he does as he goes deeper. Jesus goes deeper to the heart of this man. He's not interested in a simple proclamation of this man to some just some set of ideals he believes. He's interested and zeroed in to the heart of this man before him. And so Jesus says in verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And in one sense, Jesus sets up the entire conversation of this passage by saying, no one is good except God alone. In a sense, he answers it, doesn't Can any man be good enough for the kingdom or to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers it. No, no one's good but God alone. Who, by the way, happens to be standing right in front of this man right here. Romans 3.12 tells us as much. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's answering, what must I do? No one's good except God alone. And then in Romans 3.20, it concludes by this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And now the law is just where Jesus is going to lead this man 
to see and get into his heart. So verses 19 through 20, not reading them over, but Jesus is quoting here from the Ten Commandments. We're familiar with some of those. Uh, He really is quoting from the last, what's referred to as the second table of the law. The first table of law is referred to as the first four commands that really deal with loving God with all our heart. And then the last uh, six, so Ten Commandments, first four towards maybe more God-orientated. The last six referred to as the second table of the law referred to as just how we treat our neighbor, loving our neighbor. Jesus lists these off uh, for this man. Don't murder, adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And there is one in there that we would say, I don't remember reading that in the Ten Commandments, the one that says do not defraud. It's really the idea of withholding what is due someone. Maybe they worked for you and they, they earned a wage and you're going to hold it back from them and you're not, not going to pay them what they earn. That's also in the greater law. may not necessarily, though, there, there are ways to think about in terms of do not covet and to not defraud somebody, but it's also in the greater law. Leviticus 19.13 would be a place I'd refer you to. We're not taking a lot of time on that. But in a sense, in essence here, Jesus gives him the law. Don't do this. That, that, check them off. Can you see this guy? Kind of getting maybe excited as he goes along. Yeah, I, I didn't do that one. Or that one. Or, or that one. And he states, this man says, all these I have kept from my youth in verse 20. I think here this man, he had genuinely sought to follow these things. Um, here's what one commentator points out. And he's writing about some others. They, they've written this, he calls it a magnum opus on Judaism. Basically, their names are Strock and Billerbeck. You don't have to remember that. I'm pronouncing them. This is where this comes. But this is kind of the idea of how this was looked at in the, the Judaism of the day. What they thought. And here's what they thought. They thought that a person possessed the ability, without exception, to fulfill God's commandments. It was so firmly rooted in rabbinic teaching that in all seriousness, they spoke of people who had kept the entire Torah from A to Z. So there was this talk and this language of the time that said there are people who have kept the law A to Z. They've done it. They accomplished it. They did everything. So to them, externally keeping the law, it seemed doable. Don't murder. I haven't. Maybe we might answer. Have you murdered somebody? N- no, Uh Don't lie. That might be harder, but don't lie. All these things. So again, no doubt the man was sincere claiming he's done all these things or he hasn't done these things since youth. These were all just external. And now Jesus pulls out the scalpel and the knife to penetrate the heart and this man's desire, his true desire. Did he truly love God with all his heart, soul, and mind? Externally, he's answered the questions. He's done all these things, yet where is his heart? And this is where the master comes. And verse 21, look at what he says. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus does... Right here, he does the most loving thing for this man. 
He reveals to his own heart what he truly treasures most. The master surgeon, he's cutting open the infection to reveal that what, it, what is in this man is not good. Remember, who is good? God alone is good. Are you good? And he cuts it open to say, look at your heart. Are you willing to sell all, give all for the kingdom and then follow me? That's the call here. Jesus in love demands all from the man, not just some. Jesus is not a savior to fill a void in our hearts or an empty space as if we've just got there's a bit of emptiness and maybe he'll just fill what's empty. I'm kind of full with everything else, but he's just going to. No, Jesus wants to take it all. Mark eight thirty five through 36, probably a couple pages back from from where we are in your Bible, 835, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, we're not just talking sections. Yeah, just take a finger, or take this part. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his his soul? Jesus is to fill all the void. No gaps, no place. No room unentered by His power and majesty. It's that we would with all our hearts, souls, and minds be followers of Him. And Jesus here, He demonstrates His great love by pointing out the greatest need, you might say problem, with this rich young man. And then He's got the words, Come, follow me. Quick word of application. For us, perhaps there are times that we too see sin in somebody's life. We see them wandering or we say, boy, it looks like they're worshiping something other than God. And maybe we think it's loving to just be quiet or silent or we'll just be kind enough to them. Jesus here goes the opposite direction. His love showed forth in confronting this individual and his sin and his worship. It's the most loving thing. He could do and my challenge for myself and for you is sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to confront someone in their sin to bring them back. Not not so that even we're reconciled, that they're reconciled with their God whom whom they have gone against and worshiped other things. To expose idols of the heart. Look at verse 22, and we looked at this last week, even just this. Response of this man here. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This man rejects the kingdom. He rejects eternal life, the greatest treasure right in front of him to keep hold of a couple more golden bricks or whatever he had, whatever possessions he owned. Though he had kept the commands that we listed off, we talked about the second table of the law. He clicked those off. He failed at the very first command. It's in Exodus 20, verse 3. You can look it up later, but it's that first command. You remember what it is? You shall have no other gods before me. He had done all the, maybe, do not murder, do not lie, all these things. He had missed that first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And rather than worship the king before him, he departs. 
and leaves. We're just we're not told here of any future response of this man. I, I like to think he went away and eventually God worked on his heart and he repented and he came and was a kingdom worker. We, but we just don't know what happened to this man. But the question for us as readers of this is how would we respond? Would we, as Jesus says, say he's sitting right here, would you sell all and give to the poor? If Jesus, your commander, your king says, sell it all, give to the poor, come follow me. If we would not answer, we'd say, yeah, maybe not this. Yeah, this thing, take it uh, gladly. Not this. What would we want to hold on to if God said, let it go? What would be a struggle for us? Here's what Kent Hughes says, speaking on this passage. He says, Jesus always demands that those who come to him put away their gods. We think of little gods, maybe man-made little things in Chinese restaurants. No. no, they're all over the place. Whether they be possessions, position, power, a person, a passion. Summary, God works. Don't we need his work? To speak truth to hearts which have laid hold of other gods. We need him to work in us. Well, after this event, the cameras kind of pan out if we're watching this. The man walks away in the distance and Jesus is left with his disciples before him. And he says to them, kind of in the midst of this, verse 23, he looks around, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. There is, Jesus is going to point out here, the difficult impossibility of eternal life on our own. And it's this declaration and words of Jesus regarding the wealthy that brings this astonishment uh, to these disciples. Verse 24 says they were amazed uh, at his words. And then verse 24 continues, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. There's two things to look at here real briefly in this verse 24. I want to look at Jesus calling them children. And I want to look at what wealth meant in this day and how it might help us think through them being amazed that someone wealthy would not come uh, to Christ because maybe we're more familiar with that or, or we've just gotten familiar with those phrases and to think of what they meant at this time. In terms of children, Jesus uses a word here for children um, that's different from the passage in verses 13 through 16. You see there, there's children listed there. There's a certain Greek word for children there. But then in our passage in verse 24, we've got another word, children. They're both children, but in, a, in a, maybe a different sense. The children of 13 and through 16 are more uh, definition of infants or babes, kind of this, this youthfulness. Whereas the children here, uh, there's more this idea of a closer relationship. Uh, one resource is uh, like that of a, a spiritual child to the teacher or apostle. So there's... We see both sets, the, the children of our passage from before and the children here. But there's this, I think Jesus is 
talking to those spiritually related, his children, saying children, almost, almost a word of comfort here to them. And yet he's teaching how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He weaves in here both the impossibilities of coming to Jesus for the wealthy amidst his own called out children, his disciples here. Well, what did wealth mean? Um, It's helpful to have an understanding and a view of wealth here of the day to understand this. Here again, Ken Hughes says this. They, the disciples, believed in an ancient rendition of prosperity theology. We've heard of the prosperity gospel uh, these days, maybe. They believed in ancient rendition of prosperity theology taught by the rabbis who used Old Testament passages to equate God's blessing with material prosperity and taught that the rich could build up future merit and reward for themselves by giving to the poor. Now he moves on to say, historically, some of our ancestors, I think he's thinking of evangelical Christians in general, some of our ancestors twisted Reformed theology so as to make economic prosperity evidence that they were the elect. Today, we see this in the crass materialism of the name it and claim it school and similar embarrassments for the church. This idea of connecting God's blessing with material goods, this connection going on, it it was going on back here in this time. Hughes goes on to say, we need to hear what Jesus was really saying and to hear it well. Wealth is a handicap. Um, Some of us would like to maybe try it out. Well, I want to know how handicapped I could be, right? Here's what he's, wealth is a handicap. He says, we think the rich to be overprivileged. Jesus said they were underprivileged. I mean, who among us wouldn't say a bit more cash, a bit more money, we'd be set. As you think about that, why do we want some of those? I think it's the allurement to riches. It's an allurement to comfort. You know, I can get this. I don't need to worry if I have money for this. There's joy, maybe peace, maybe security. Man, if I know this is going to be set, I can rest at ease in that sort of idea. And how quickly the love of money, whether we be rich or poor, can handicap our love of God alone. But in case we didn't hear Jesus twice say it's difficult to enter, he gives the most helpful illustration in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I have one object lesson for today. I had my wife bring up a needle because I forgot it at home. This is it. I don't, this isn't the one that Jesus was referring to. I don't know what kind of needle. Same thing. There's an eye in this, if you can see it. Kids, you see this needle up here? Now imagine if we had a camel, probably twice the size and height of this piano right here, trying to fit through the eye of that needle. It's pretty crazy. That's what Jesus is saying. How can you fit through this eye of the needle? Now, here's what's interesting. He says it's easier. So this is easy. (laughs) That's how much he's illustrating. This, a camel through the eye of this thing, is easier 
than a rich man entering the kingdom of God. It gives us an idea of just how difficult it is. It's not just, well, it's going to be hard. I bet it'll happen. It's impossible. And that's as much of what he's going to say here. And so the disciples here, look at their response. They were, uh, verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. This isn't just hmm, interesting. This is exceeding astonishment. And they said to him, aren't we thankful they asked this question? (laughs) Then who can be saved? If not them, again, thinking thinking of they're equating the rich with maybe the a blessing of God of sorts. If they're blessed of God and and it's hard or it's impossible for them, who has a chance? Who can be saved? And I think here, perhaps the disciples were were close to getting it. I think they understood. What did what did they understand? I think they're starting to understand and see the impossibility of salvation. It's a salvation independent of status or wealth or merit, what we do. Look at Jesus' answer in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the amazing grace of the working intervention of God on our behalf. Here it is, the heart of salvation. Really the answer to the rich man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer, it is impossible. You cannot do it. If we're to use the the language of this man, what must I do? Jesus says, you can't do it. Perhaps, and I don't know, but perhaps maybe we think we would have fared better before Jesus. Maybe we would have said, we'll give it all. We left everything. We followed. Not according to Jesus here. With man, salvation is impossible. We are all a herd of camels who cannot fit through an eye of a needle called salvation. Do you believe that? Are you a camel not able to fit? Do you have a big size view of the impossibility of doing enough righteous deeds to get to eternal life. But praise God here that he does what is impossible. He performs a miracle. Say, do we see God's miracles? Yes, it's people coming to Jesus. It's a miracle that they do. He gives life to what has died. Um, I think if you even read as you're reading through the New Testament on a daily basis, you perhaps read this morning already in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jesus was using the letter of the law to bring to knowledge sin. You don't love God with all your heart, and yet it's His Spirit that brings life. He opens blind eyes, deaf ears, lifeless bodies. Right In Mark, we've seen this all the way up to here. Jesus has brought up from the dead uh, one person so far. The young young girl. Maybe two if you count. Uh, there was a boy with a demon who we looked at uh, I mean, months ago, I think it's been now, who convulsed him. The boy was like a, a corpse. Most thought him dead. In both, 
both cases, I find this just interesting. These were children that God brought back from the dead. I think God has been using his work among children to teach us that the way to the kingdom is not up. It's not wealth. It's not status or merit. The way is realizing our need and the impossibility for what is dead to make itself alive again. So God miraculously works to save those who cannot save themselves on their own. Eternal life here, it's found in Christ alone, whose shed blood on the cross would pay the penalty we deserve for sins. And by God's grace in our hearts, we're awakened to trust Him alone to save us. Thou must save and thou alone, says the old hymn. Well, briefly, let's look at this last part where Peter begins to speak. 28 through 31, and he says this in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Peter enters the scene. He's kind of a, I think, a contrasting character to this rich man who has left. We've got the rich man and Jesus interaction. Now you have Peter and Jesus in this interaction here. Jesus had asked the rich man to leave his possessions and follow Christ. Peter seems to remember leaving it all and he wants to make sure Jesus remembers. Maybe he sees this guy walking away and he's, hey, remember, we we did this. We left it all. We were remember that. And we saw that back in the beginning of Mark, back in chapter one, 16 through 20. They left their nets and their family to follow Jesus. Those whom Jesus calls to himself, they will come and they will follow because his sheep hear his voice. And then Jesus replies to Peter with this hundredfold increase for those who have left it all for him. Look at verses 29 through 30. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Part of verse 29 answers why they left. Why did they leave? The last part of it says, for what? For my sake and for the gospel. It is a surrender of a life to leave it all for the sake of the Savior and the good news of the gospel. The rich man wanted to save his life, keep his life with his earthly possessions. But it will be lost one day and then judgment. Yet those who left it all, loss of life for the sake of Christ will gain it. And Christ says a hundredfold. And what do they receive? That's what verse 30 answers. Receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers. I think this is where maybe some of the prosperity preachers would say, see, leave it all, you're going to get physical possessions like that. As I look out among you, I know I have a mom and dad and I have a sister-in-law and a brother. I have sisters here. I have brothers here. You do too as you look around. 
and how much greater the church. Is it a hundredfold? I haven't counted today. I, I don't know. But on and on and on. I think there's a spiritual sense here of this. Listen to what Ken Hughes says again. He says, one house gone, but a hundred doors are open. One brother in the flesh lost, but a thousand brothers in the spirit. Whose love is deeper and whose kinship is profounder. Do you realize that brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a greater relationship than our own family does in Christ. He says this, this has been the testimony of many missionaries who have joyfully quoted this verse and described their experience with it. The joy of leaving it all. And the increase what Jesus says here, but along with that, you heard the words in there, maybe we want to skip over that it's with persecution. Yeah, I got more sisters, brothers and with persecutions, the increase. We need to count the cost. That's part of it. We follow. We leave all to follow. Forsaking all for Christ, it is not the easy road plan, but it is the the best life towards the greatest treasure type plan, though there be persecution along the way. And I believe that movie that's showing tomorrow night, whether you go to it or not, Richard Wormbrand found that out. And he discovered that he lost all for the sake of following Christ. You want to see a story, you want to grow in that, go see that movie and see what he, how he prayed for his captors even. That's in this time though. Jesus gives that who we receive now in this time, but at the end of verse 30, and in the age to come eternal life. Again, after the rich man has left the scene, his question is answered. By God's grace, making possible what is impossible and bringing men and women to the kingdom those who have left it all to follow, gain it all in the end. And so here in this last section, God works to lavish grace on those who have left it all for his kingdom. How do we respond to this? A couple thoughts here. As we kind of just review back and look at these sections. Again, our first statement that God works to speak truth to hearts which have laid hold to other gods. Do you realize what a gracious God we serve who will jealously come after His own so that they might come to Him alone and worship Him alone? That God is at work in His own to strip away, not in a mean and unloving way, strip away those things that we would worship Loving us enough to show us what is best himself. Are you feeling stripped away or like things are just being torn apart? None of us like to stay in that trial or in that hard time, but they're so gloriously wonderful because it's stripped away that we come with this worship. Look at the book of Job, for instance. Number two, God works to save those who can't be saved on their own. Do you see the impossibility of being saved on your own? That's, that's one of the initial steps, if you will, to call it steps, maybe not the best word, but the initial things is to say, I cannot save myself. I have so much sin. I cannot stand before a holy God. I have loved other things. So I ask, do you know Jesus? Do you claim him 
as Savior. He did. He was the doer, not you. He did. We trust in what He did. You wonder, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We repent of our life of worshiping self, holding on to other little g-gods of this world. And by faith, we look to Jesus, whose blood covers our sins. He was raised to life because He's raised to life. We too will have new life and really live. And then number three, as we just looked at, that God works to lavish grace the hundredfold, the brothers, the sisters, the houses, persecutions, eternal life on those who have left it all for His kingdom. The Christian life is not a spectator sport, is it? I want to ask how God is speaking to you through His Word here. Is there a room in your life, an area you are holding on to that you need to leave behind in order to fully follow Him? Perhaps you literally, physically need to leave and go preach the gospel to another nation that has not heard. Maybe that's where you need to go. And parents, we need to encourage them (laughs) and let them go. There's both sides there to that. Perhaps it's some possession or longing for just a bit more, a little bit more and we'll be content. And it has a deeper hold than you realize. And you need to leave it for the king of all kings. Or perhaps it's more private. It's an area of sin you know in your life. It does not honor God. I'm holding on to it. Lord, take it all, but let me hold on to this little bit of sin here. It's not really so bad. It's not all my possession. I, yeah, I could give it up. As I, do we need to leave that? Leave it for the king. Verse 31 concludes this passage. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Many who are first will be last and the last first. We're going to see that theme again next week as we go through here. Um, I believe and see Jesus serving. But may we, God's people, be the first to say, Lord, I'm willing to leave it all to follow you and open our hearts. Lord, what is it you want me to leave? To ask and then be willing to follow through on what He reveals. Lord, I'm unworthy. I'm unable to save myself. I need Your grace to save me. It's impossible. Save me, Jesus. And Lord, whether You give or take away, as Job realized, I'm going to bless Your name. My life is for Your sake and the Gospel. May that be our call in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you have revealed your word to us. You've preserved it over the ages to reveal these truths by your spirit today, March 4, 2018. Because each of us have hearts that easily go astray. And in this world, we continue to battle in the flesh of desires that would go against you, desiring other things than you, worshiping other things than you. Lord, it's impossible. So, Lord, would you do what's impossible, as you've said here, and would you change our hearts? Would you work and convict us that we would worship you alone? 
And Lord, when those hard things come and we see things ripped away, may we, may we not see them as your absence, but your very care for us to lead us back to worship you alone. And Lord, I pray that each one of us in this room in hearing this, that we would leave it all for your sake and the gospel. Lord, if it's to a foreign land where we need to die to preach the gospel, may you have your will. If there's kids we need to let go and encourage them to go, may we do that. There's things in our hearts that are holding us back from worshiping you, loving you with all our heart, soul, and mind. Lord, take them and work in us and guide us to love you alone for your sake and for the sake of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, and life. In Jesus' name.